Um, thanks again for coming out. Uh, thanks, Aaron and Kelly, for inviting me here to talk tonight. Uh, code and creativity is a, a great way to bring like-minded creative prof professionals together, which brings me to you guys. Um, I'd much rather talk to a room full of people than an empty room. Um, this isn't possible without you, so I really appreciate it. Uh, and in the spirit of getting away from our screens and engaging with our fellow humans, please feel welcome to come up afterwards and ask me a question or just talk to me. Uh, like Kelly said, I currently work at Automatic, the makers of WordPress, where I'm a design engineer, which basically means I design interfaces. Uh, I decided to become a design major right here at UTC in 1997, and the work I'm doing now is a lot different uh, than the work that I originally thought I'd be, do I'd be doing. And this talk is kind of a reflection of that journey. It's called Process, Tools, and the Future of Our Practice. And the genesis for this talk came after reading article after article about, about designing for mobile, which is a topic that, as a web professional, you can't avoid, even as much as you may want to. It wasn't necessarily the articles themselves that were that interesting, because the conversations and the topics in them weren't that interesting in and of themselves. It was the numbers. The most compelling thing were the statistics. And these numbers are always changing, always evolving. They were significant. Last year, approximately 350 million PCs were sold compared to 919 million smartphones. The total number of smartphones entering the world per day was about 3.6 million compared to 371,000 births per day. So if you can imagine, 10 new smartphones for every new baby. Worldwide shipments of laptops and desktops fell 14% in the first quarter of 2013 to make the forced rate quarter declines, and this was the most significant drop since 1994. Approximately 17% of all notebooks last year were forecast to have touch. And lastly, if we compare global sales of PCs against global sales of smartphones and tablets in 1995, or since 1995, we get a pretty clear picture of what's happening. And I think one of the main reasons of this shift is the following. Mobile internet is taken everywhere. It's personal. It's with us all the time. PC internet is semi-portable at best. And there's a pattern to these numbers. This pattern simply and powerfully underlines the enormous shift that designing for the web has taken over the last decade. It's become clear that I'm not designing for the web anymore. This has become bigger than I ever imagined. And these figures trigger a little bit of panic. They underline the speed at which the environment I'm building for is changing. I now have to think about things that several years ago I didn't. Stuff like screen size, resolution, touch, context, input types and output types. And if what I'm designing is, and building is changing, then how I'm designing and building must change as well. My toolbox must evolve. What will these tools look like? How will I use them and for what? How will my process change? What will my process even look like in five or 10 years? How will the public engage with what I build? Do I even want to do this anymore? So before I started working on the web, I worked as a print designer. And my process then was very, very simple. It looked a little bit like this. It's a bit simplified here, but you kind of get the point. My process was a linear progression, formulaic even. It's how I learned to work while in college. Everything starts with pencil and paper, and here's why. When I start any project, I have lots of ideas. Lots of really, really bad ideas. Pretty shitty ones. And I need to get as many of those ideas out as quickly as possible so that I can get to the good stuff. It can take a while, but it's usually worth it. 
So I always start with sketches, even today. Sketching is thinking. It's not just drawing. I knew that for any given project, I just needed to follow the steps, and it would more than likely yield good, good results. In a way, it was predictable. And I think we all crave a certain level of predictability in our process. It's comforting and reassuring. It lets us know we're on the right path, that we're getting somewhere. So going back to this process, it was driven by the tools that were available at the time and my access to those tools. There weren't that many, Photoshop, Illustrator, Quark, or InDesign, and that's about it. But this was really great. These were constraints, and as a designer, I was taught to thrive within constraints. I didn't waste any creative energy searching for the best or most appropriate tool for the job. There were only a few, and everybody else used them as well. From project to project, my tools didn't vary, and my process remained relatively unchanged. Again, it was predictable, not the concept, just how I got there. In those early days, everything revolved around the page, the form. The page was static, which nicely complemented the way that I worked, my linear process. And much like the early days of designing for the web, and still today, the grid was an indispensable tool for shaping that page. This is the distinction that many designers often forget. The grid is not the page. It is a tool for shaping the page. The grid helps one organize content, and it responds to the content as much as the content responds to the grid. It is the underlying rhythm. It is the breath of the piece. It is never meant to be seen, only experienced. The grid pulls type and image together. It reveals the layout. And the wonderful thing about designing for print is at the end of this long, often arduous process of talking with the client, strategizing and developing a concept, exploring ideas, gathering and creating content, and finally designing the thing, we're left with just that, a thing, an object, a physical and permanent design artifact. Designing and building for the early web was a lot like the process I just outlined. But the conversations were much different. I discussed business goals and how the website would affect their bottom line. And back in 2003, I never had a client ask about content strategy, responsive approach, mobile strategy, user context, typography, or performance. Staying true to my process in the early static web, I would sketch a lot, which led to sitemaps and wireframes. Eventually, I'd find myself in Photoshop, spending hours upon hours crafting a pixel-perfect mock-up of what the site would hopefully look like when it reached the browser. I'd go through dozens of iterations for a particular design approach, each with its own file filling up my hard drive. There was no versioning at this point. These high-fidelity mock-ups were just documents, schematics. They were only symbols of what was to be built. They communicated the artificial, the superficial, but I needed these. As Andy Clark, the leading voice in the web design, in web design recently said, these static visuals were, were currency. These are what I traded for a client's approval and sign-off. And the early web looked a lot like this, by the way. This is the personal side of Jeffrey Zellman, who, by all accounts, is the father of the modern web. He's largely responsible for getting the web to where it is today. This was in 1998, and at, and at the time, something like this was, this was awesome. We didn't know that the web could be anything more than this, and interactive at that point just mean that it had links. So despite similarities between my process for print and my process for the web, the finished work is different in two very very significant ways. It was interactive, and it never really has a finished state. And I say never finished because when a site is launched, it's really just a snapshot. I can continue to refine it. I can change out an image, 
edit text, correct typos, and even remove pages. When a site is launched, it's birthed, and it grows, it evolves. Now, I'm a creature of habit. Seriously, I thrive on routines and habits. Whether it's a workout routine at the gym, the fastest route to work, or the process I use to shape an idea. When I find something that works, I stick with it. And habits can be good, but it's important to find the ones that work for you, even if that means breaking old ones. It's change, and change is often very hard, but it can also be very rewarding. The web is a much different place now than it was 10 years ago, even five years ago, 12 months ago even. It's stretchy, it flexes, it shrinks and expands to fill every screen, and so must our designs. Thinking back to something about the stats earlier, it's no wonder. The internet is increasingly mobile. Screens are everywhere. They are the new frontier. So we design experiences that keep us there. This vast array of screen sizes means that as a designer, I'm no longer designing a set of fixed width, static facsimiles of what a website might look like. I'm designing a system of layout independent components to be seen on every screen size and every device out there. And this idea isn't really new. Designers have been thinking about abstracting and deconstructing design for some time now, separating the individual components from the layout. And this makes sense because there's no layout anymore. Only systems and what goes in those systems. Trent Walton is another leading voice in web design, and he recently wrote, web designers will have to look beyond layout, beyond the page in front of them to envision how its elements will reflow and lock up at various widths while also maintaining form and hierarchy. Perhaps one of the better known approaches that has been talked about a lot lately is this concept of atomic design. Atomic design breaks entire interfaces down into fundamental building blocks, components like parts of a car or the periodic table. Brad Frost is the, the creator of this approach, and he says atomic design is a methodology for creating systems. And these are the five distinct parts of that system. Atoms, molecules, organisms, templates, pages. Because of this, we can create systems that promote consistency and scalability. And by assembling rather than deconstructing, we're crafting a system right out of the gate instead of cherry-picking patterns after the fact. The language he uses is very important. It's troubling for me. Consistency, scalability, assembling patterns. Does this sound like design or manufacturing? Bootstrap is a downloadable, responsive web framework that comes bundled with templates, preprocessors, and a library of components. It's targeted at designers and developers of all skill levels and for a project of any size. It makes getting your project off the ground and launched quick and easy. Foundation is yet another responsive web framework. It was created by Zurb, which is a product company in California. It's touted as being faster for users, faster to code, and faster to learn. How fast? Apparently, crazy fast. I'm not so sure when we got so obsessed with speed. Yet again, GridSet is another tool for constructing grids that you can use while designing and building. It allows you to quickly build a set of grids to be used at all the various breakpoints and screen sizes that we now have to account for. It calculates all the necessary math to get those grids to be responsive, and then compiles the code for you to use in a project right out of the gate. And I mentioned atomic design earlier, this idea of constructing design systems rather than pages. Brad Frost's Pattern Lab is another tool that helps you do just that. And unlike Bootstrap or Foundation, 
Pattern Lab is not a library of ready-to-use components or templates, but rather a tool to help you develop a system for the project at hand. And finally, Macaw is an image editor that writes beautiful code. So imagine Photoshop that also produces code. It combines the process of designing and building into one fluid interface, and it comes packaged with rich typography, responsive workflows, and fluid canvases. It allows me to build a working interactive prototype even faster. These are only a few of the tools that are out there. I haven't even touched on things like SAS, LESS, Grunt, GhostLab, EdgeInspect, EdgeReflow, Emmet, Git, and the list goes on and on and on. It seems like a framework or a tool or a library or whatever comes out every week. And these tools are supposed to make our process easier, more efficient, and they do. But, what, but at what cost? What happens when the important design decisions like this become automated? It's the homogenous web. And don't get me wrong, I use most of these tools, and I'm really thankful. But what they afford us, what they provide, is dangerously seductive. And again, going back to Andy Clark, he re recently said, don't get drunk on process or fall in love with tools. Because if we do, we run the risk of forgetting what really matters. The idea, what I'm designing and who I'm designing for. My process now looks something like this. My industry and the process I love so much has changed. But change is inevitable, especially for an industry that demands so much of its users and of its practitioners. So I'm no longer working in the same industry I started out in. The landscape has evolved, and so must I. I must adapt. We're in a new era. A new horizon can be seen. A new understanding of what's possible, or what is now possible, means that my process must evolve as much as the tools. So I took a quick inventory of the tools that I used to use compared to the tools that I use now. So this was manageable. I needed no more, no less. And if I did need a new tool, I was shit out of luck. It didn't exist yet. This is kind of what I use now on a weekly basis. It's like my toolbox has exploded. But each and every tool has its place, and each tool plays a significant role in launching a project. And these aren't even all of them. These are the ones that I just use most often. And I suspect that this will continue to evolve as new, more efficient tools come out and replace the old, less efficient ones. So where does this leave us? What will all this look like five years out? I have no idea. We already know that the way we engage with the digital world is changing at a rapid pace. It's my job to keep up, to stay on the cutting edge of what's happening out there. Doing so allows me to adapt my toolbox and my process accordingly and build better products for people who use them. How will we as design practitioners engage with our tools? What will our digital environments and the tools that we use to build them look like? No matter where the tools and technology take me, at the end of the day, I will always be a designer, striving to create work that matters to people. Thank you. So, I have uh, my Twitter handle, my email, if you have questions or just want to shoot me an idea or maybe give me another idea for a different talk, let me know. Oh gosh, that is very small. It's uh, it's at Justin Crop. I actually did. Uh, <laughs> that said, I'll blame it on Retina. Other questions? All right. Well, if you have any, come up and afterwards and talk to me. Thank you.